0: back to Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast hosted by yours truly, Vicki James. So today is a little bit of a milestone. It's our 10th episode, and I'm going to be doing it on the Chicago Tylenol murders. And this is actually going to be my first time hosting just a whole episode all by myself. So we're going to see how it goes and, you know, my awkwardness and my laughter at my own jokes. And yeah, this should be quite the experience for not only you guys, but for me too. So, yeah, let's let's see how it goes. So this episode is not actually as graphic as the past ones that I've done. This is just basically a good old fashioned poisoning. So only you know light discretion is advised. It's not too gruesome or horrific. Also a quick update, after today's episode, I'm going on a little bit of a vacation down on Vancouver Island, which is on the west coast of Canada, to see some family. My dad lives down there, so, you know, they're not very techie people down there and don't even have Wi-Fi, so the podcast is going to be taking just a little bit of a break. So the next one was uh, will be posted on August 24th, so it is about a month, but don't worry. The, the person we're doing it on next is... Honestly, one of the most interesting cases I've ever discovered It is insane. Like, it's absolutely insane. And we're going overseas. So it's going to be in Austria. So that's a little hint um, for a pretty interesting case that's based out of Austria. So with that, let's grab a BLT, a cucumber sprout, or even a cheesy meatball sub. And let's mow down on some true crime. So Chicago Tylenol murders, like I said in the intro, for anyone who's not familiar, Chicago is a very large metropolitan area in the United States, in the state of Illinois. This story is based in the 80s, so, you know, 1980 population was around 3 million. And I looked it up and about today it's 2.6 million, so a little bit lower than it was before. This story is going to be starting off on September 29th, 1982. Mary Kellerman, she's a 12-year-old little girl, and she lived in Elk Grove Village in Illinois. So it's like a little suburb outside of Chicago. And she, you know, told her parents that she was starting to experience, you know, a sore throat, runny nose, you know, like the basic cold symptoms. And so they gave her a one extra strength Tylenol capsule that little did they know was laced with highly poisonous potassium cyanide. Mary unfortunately did pass away the next day in the morning at 9 30. They originally thought it was actually a stroke but within a week her death would cause absolute panic all over the entire nation. That same day A postal worker named Adam Janus, he was only 27. He lived in Arlington Heights in Illinois, which is, again, another suburb of Chicago. And he died of what was initially thought to be a massive heart attack, but again turned out to be cyanide poisoning. You know, all of Adam's family was at the hospital, so, you know, they get the bad news that, unfortunately, Adam didn't make it. They all go home. They're all kind of grieving. And Adam's brother, Stanley, he's only 25, and his wife... Uh, whose name is Teresa is 19. They have a headache when they're like with their family. And so they end up taking two Tylenols and they both get rushed to the hospital. Like literally they called 911 and to come get an ambulance for Stanley because he like passed out in the house. And as the hospital, like hospital, as the ambulance arrived, they were like loading Stanley in there. And then that's when Teresa passed out. So then they just had to take her into the ambulance too. They both get rushed to the hospital. They both immediately go into a coma. Unfortunately, Stanley actually died that same day. And then Teresa died a couple days later and they just had to take her off life support. Like she like couldn't be revived at all. So basically like three people from the same family died in the same day. So because of that, they actually thought it was carbon monoxide poisoning. They like they just didn't see the connection with the tylenol yet. So they told the whole the whole rest of the family and everyone who lived there to immediately vacate the residence and so they were at the hospital getting like checked out for carbon monoxide poisoning but everything just came back negative and like the house came back negative and everything came back negative. So again, they're just like what is going on? So it was actually first this nurse and I didn't get her first name, but her, they just referenced her as Nurse Jensen. And so she realized that the three members of the family had all taken Tylenol. So she suggested to officials, like, it could be the Tylenol. But they were just not convinced at all. They're like, no, no, it can't be the Tylenol. No. So then some firefighters, they're talking about, like, you know, some recent cases that they've really dealt with. And, like, it's super weird. And they talk about, like the Janus family case right and so then they talk about you know Mary Kellerman's case and they both conclude you know it could be the Tylenol bottles and so they told officials who checked it out which like why would they believe the nurse like not to get all sexist or anything but like what so like <laughs> what is with that like you don't believe the nurse but you believe the firefighters I just okay like whatever just saying The officials did check it out after the male firefighters (laughs) suggested it was that, and all the Tylenol bottles had actually had the same control numbers. The bottles looked normal, but once they opened the capsules, they immediately smelled bitter almonds, which is the common odor of cyanide. So they're like, okay, interesting. For anyone who doesn't know, cyanide is a poison uh, that occurs rapidly, and it basically inhibits the body's ability to like even use oxygen. And the pills were actually laced with a hundred to a thousand times the legal limit, which is like crazy. Apparently, it was enough to kill like a thousand people. Like how? Like what? <laughs> Just seems weird. Like they really wanted to make sure that people were like hurt. Which is just, like, it's sad. Like, I, I don't know. That's, it's just, it's a lot. I don't know. It just seems like they, like, did, like, I just don't know why you do so much. But, obviously, you just want to make sure the job gets done, I guess. So, within the next few days, there were three more deaths. So, there was Mary McFarland, who was 35. She lives in Elmhurst, Illinois. And she took Tylenol at work and ended up collapsing in the break room after experiencing a headache. And then there's Paula Prince, and she's also 35. She lived in Chicago. She was a flight attendant, and she took her Tylenol before bed and was not found till two days later by a concerned friend. Like, that is awful. And then Mary Reiner, who's 27, and she actually had just given birth to her fourth child. And she lived in Winfield, Illinois, and she also consumed Tylenol for a headache. So October of 1982, just the next month, the authorities eventually connected all the deaths to Tylenol, which is at the time the best-selling non-prescription pain reliever sold in the United States, and tests were completely and quickly executed, which soon revealed that cyanide was present in the capsules of all the people who died. So they're all connected, they're all the same person, all the same way. And this is this is a time before you know, we seal anything, there's no child protection, the Tylenol bottles don't even like come in cardboard boxes even, right? Like they're not, the cardboard boxes aren't even sealed. It's just in a little box and you just open up the bottle and there's like a little cotton thing in there. Like that's it. Like that's it. Warnings were issued for the media and like patrols even went out and patrolled through the city and warned residents through loudspeakers. The end of days, totally different time, obviously no social media and the internet or anything like that to just immediately tell people. Like, that's just crazy that that's, like, how they had to reveal that information to everyone. Like, that's how they had to do it. They're, like, going out, like, (laughs) loudspeakers throughout the city They are totally discontinuing the use of Tylenol products. And they even, the city even handed out flyers in multiple languages, like telling people to not consume Tylenol. So the city went into like an absolute panic. They were, everyone was just overloading hospitals. And every single problem that they had, they were like, I've been poisoned with cyanide. Like, please help me out. Like, just for everything. So the police had to start investigating, obviously. So they started with the usual, like, You know, is there any disgruntled employees at any of the, you know, production companies or manufacturer companies or just the company in general? Any employees that, you know, recently were fired? You know, shoplifters that had recently been caught were investigated. Recently released, you know, people that were involved with theft were investigated. Like, everyone that they could think of, and it just, nothing came out properly. In early 1983, at the FBI's request and the family's request... The, they did release at the Chicago Tribune, they published the address and grave location of the first and youngest victim, Mary Kellerman, the 12-year-old. So the story was proposed by a criminal analyst, John Douglas, on the theory that the perpetrator might actually visit the house or the grave site if he was made aware of like where they actually were. But they kept it under 24-hour surveillance for months, and no one like ever showed up, Like no one ever suspicious. And so that that idea just like went out the window. So police also ruled out manufacturers as the tampered bottles came from different pharmaceutical companies and the seven deaths only had occurred in the Chicago area. So sabotage and production ended up being ruled out. As the last two deaths, the bottles had completely different control numbers, came from completely different areas. They were picked up at different stores, made in different places. You know, like everything was different. So they concluded that they were looking for someone who had gone and bought the Tylenol from various retail places, like supermarkets, you know, drugstores, like whatever, over several weeks. And then the culprit likely added the cyanide to the capsules and then returned to stores and placed the bottles back on the shelves. And he had to have done it the day before the first death because the cyanide would have dissolved the capsules quickly. So it like literally would have had to been done right away. Like it wouldn't have been able to sit on the shelf for longer than a few days. So it had to been done like quick, quick, quick. They actually did release a surveillance photo of Paula Prince, who was purchasing her cyanide tempered at a Walgreens on Northwell Street. And so the Chicago Police Department released it and they believed that there is a bearded man that's seen just a couple feet behind her that they think is the killer. But unfortunately, this man has like never been identified publicly. Like people have theories on who they think it is, but it's just never been confirmed. Absolutely ever. Johnson & Johnson is actually the company that manufactures Tylenol. I might refer to them a few times as J&J just because... I get a little lazy when I'm talking about them. <laughs> uh, if, if for anyone who doesn't know, they're an American multinational corporation. They were founded in 1886, and they develop things like medical devices, you know, pharmaceutical, like, drugs and consumer packaged goods. Like, if you go down, like, a baby or a kid's aisle, like, it's... Like, every brand under the sun is Johnson & Johnson. They are everywhere. Uh, even part of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. J&J took an active role within the, with the media in issuing all these, like, mass warning communications. And so, on October 5th, 1982, a nationwide recall of Tylenol products, which was an estimated 31 million bottles that were in circulation, had to, like, be recalled, and that retailed over a hundred million dollars in U.S., which is equivalent to about two hundred and sixty-eight million dollars today, which is crazy. In an effort to reassure the public, Johnson and Johnson did distribute warnings, you know, to the hospitals and distributors, and they halted all Tylenol production and totally cut off all advertising, so you couldn't find anything in newspapers, in media tv like nothing so they cut all of it off and the company also advertised in the national media for individuals not to consume any of its products that consumed acetaminophen after it was determined that only those uh, capsules had been tampered with so they were the only ones like nothing else that they made was tampered with just Tylenol so Johnson Johnson also started a 1-800 phone number and that was to directly handle calls from the panicked public And then they also had a separate media line for reporters. Now, like I used to work at a call center and I would absolutely hate if my boss came up to me and was like, Hey, I want you to handle this 1-800 number for people to call in and answer questions about, you know, the, the Tylenol murders, like that would be the absolute worst. Because you're just essentially just listening to people be scared and nervous. That's just, oh, that would just be so awkward. Awful. Awful. Anyway, uh, they also offered $100,000 as a reward to whomever has information that leads to the culprit. And to my knowledge, this never got paid out or used or anything like that. Johnson Johnson also offered to exchange all Tylenol capsules already purchased by the public for solid tablets over 10 million recall pills were tested 50 capsules ended up containing cyanide pills and they were in eight bottles so five belonged to the victims two were involved in the recall and then they found one just like alone sitting on a shelf like unsold uh there were never any fingerprints on the bottles or any other physical evidence and they also like never found any evidence of like the trail of him going like store to store or anything like that because some had cameras and some didn't so there's just like nothing there. So in 1982, the incident actually inspired the pharmaceutical food and consumer product industries to develop tamper resistant packaging such as induction seals and to improve quality control methods, which is great. And additionally, the pharmaceutical industry moved away from capsules, which were really easy to contaminate as a foreign substance could just be placed inside without obvious signs of tampering. So within the year after the Chicago murders, the FDA did introduce more stringent regulations to avoid product tampering. This led to the eventual total replacement of the capsule with a now what we know as like the solid caplet. And this tablet is made in the shape of a capsule as a drug delivery form, but it has the addition to the tamper-evident safety seals, and it also has, like, a gelatin on the outside and is easier to swallow. I think, I think we all know the ones I'm talking about. So in 1983, U.S. Congress passed what we now call the Tylenol Bill um, and actually made it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. They made way more laws about it and regulations, and So then in 1989, which is the year I was born, the FDA established federal guidelines for manufacturers to make all such products tamper-proof. So this includes the standard that we all know today. So it has like an outer box with glue flaps, a plastic seal over the cap, and then a bottleneck and a foil seal under the cap. That's exactly how we know it today. So crazy when you think about it, that like you could just walk in and like open it up and just put whatever you wanted inside. Like that is absolutely bizarre. So Johnson & Johnson actually received pretty positive coverage for how they handled the incident. Uh, At the time of the scare, though, the company's market share did collapse from 35% all the way down to 8%. But they did rebound in less than a year. So in November, they reintroduced the capsules, uh, but they you know, triple seal package it. And then they actually put in like really, really good price discounts. And then within a several years, Tylenol actually had regained the highest market share. And they actually almost changed the name of Tylenol when they came back, but they decided not to. They They decided to keep the name. So Johnson & Johnson were said to exemplify the kind of corporate responsibility that you would want to expect from like a business that gets in that kind of I don't don't know if you want to call it, like, scandal, but that kind of, like, situation, right? Like, you... They came out and were very honest and, and, like, were very heavily involved in the investigation and, like, really tried to make sure that they acknowledged it and were just trying to fix that problem. So, you know, I actually agree by what I could read is I think they did, like, a really good job and really they did, like, all they could to kind of help that situation and were obviously the spearheaders for the, or the packaging that we know today. is kind of sad that the safety precautions kind of like painted with blood. So because they did a really, really good job with this scandal, um, there were other companies in subsequent years that had really tried to like absorb the morale of the Tylenol story. And I actually found some that, you know, were good and then some that weren't so good. So in 1996... A 16-month-year-old girl actually died, and 70 others were uh, sickened after drinking a Adwalla apple juice. Uh, it was actually found to have been contaminated with E. coli bacteria. The company immediately recalled all the products uh, containing apple or carrot juice, and they paid millions to settle lawsuits and to cover a federal government fine. but they quickly changed its safety procedures, and they were back selling apple juice two months later. I... Did figure out that they were found guilty and they did get fined over the apple juice tainting. And I found a few that didn't do so good. So, Wells Fargo was actually really slow to acknowledge that its sales culture had led to employees to create millions of phony checking and savings accounts and even creating fraudulent credit cards accounts by putting, like, people's different addresses and stuff, they ended up being fined $185 million for creating all these, like, fraudulent accounts, which is pretty crazy. And then Equifax, which is the Consumer Credit Reporting Agency, they let a couple of months pass before publicly acknowledging that hackers had gained access to their personal data of like tens of millions of customers. I'm not sure if anyone remembers that, but I do. Uh, they're actually ha- they did have a lot of government investigations and huge expenses after that major data breach. I couldn't get any more information other than that. Even Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook took some time before publicly accepting that the platform was used. To use melevantly in the 2016 presidential election. This was totally investigated and he was potentially fined over its role in the Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election, but I couldn't find any details, so I don't know any more inf- information about that. So, don't come for me. <laughs> Uh, and then Toyota plotted along even amid their mass recalls and they discovered that there was like jammed accelerators and that drivers were dying. There was lots of lawsuits and stuff, but very unclear repercussions because they probably covered it up pretty good. And then, you know, Johnson & Johnson, they're not perfect, in 2010, it was revealed that the company actually secretly bought up defective drugs without informing consumers or government regulators, and then a year later, in a phantom recall, uh, it had actually sent an agent pretending to be ordinary shoppers to snag up $88,000 of problematic Motrin tablets from store shelves, which is just, like, super weird. So let's go through some suspects. This is, uh, these are pretty interesting. These get, yeah, this gets pretty good. So we're going to talk about the main one first. Okay, so this one's a little bit long-ish. So during initial investigations, a man named James William Lewis's fingerprints were found on a letter that was sent to Johnson & Johnson one week after the murders. And this is what the letter said. It said, Johnson & Johnson, parent of McNeil Laboratories. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity about these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50 and takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account eight four four nine five nine seven at Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago, Illinois. Do not attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls from me will undo anything that you can possibly do. So the letter had that bank account number, It actually belonged to a guy named Frederick Miller-McCahie, and the letter had been stamped by the postage meter machine at Frederick's now-closed travel agency business. So he was ruled out, but they asked if he had any enemies. He immediately said Richard and Nancy Richardson. So Richard and Nancy Richardson (laughs) tried to sue Frederick for loss of wages when the business went under. And it never really went anywhere, and it was only $511. So, the police actually identified Nancy and Richard, and they, that's, that was not their real names. Okay, their real names were James and Leanne Lewis. So, who's James Lewis? Who's this character? So, Lewis did have a pretty troubled background. He was actually placed in foster care, you know, that, a type of situation like that, and he was not adopted until he was three. So, he had a history as a child as having, like, pretty bad anger issues. He actually chased his mother with an axe when he was 19. And in another incident, he was actually charged with assault for breaking his father's ribs. Later, he was ended up diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he was placed in a psychiatric hospital after he attempted suicide by overdosing on Anakin pills. I think I read a report that he took, like, 36 or something. And later he he claimed that the suicide attempt and the anger issues and all of that was actually just a ruse set up by his family so that he wouldn't be drafted into the army for the Vietnam War, which is like pretty shady. Like, oh, my God. So, Lewis excelled at school though. Like, he ended up going to the University of Missouri, and that's where he ended up meeting his wife, Leanne. And after school, they settled down in Kansas City and they ended up working as bookkeepers in this tax accounting firm. They worked there for a little bit, and then at some point, there was some sort of disagreement with their boss, and they both just ended up quitting the firm one day and just starting their own. And this is when they met a 72 year old retired truck driver, and his name's Raymond West. And he becomes their first client. So they're working his books and, you know, they're all excited. They're, you know, his first client. Great, great, great. So West ends up being reported missing by a friend on July 24th, 1978. So this is, this is four years prior to the Tylenol murders. Okay. Stay with me. Stay with me. Okay. A note with Lewis, you know, Lewis's new firm's letterhead on it was found stuck to a door saying that West was out of town, and to see Lewis for details, which is, like, weird. If you're out of town, why would you give your, like, bookkeepers information, like, to check up on you? Like, that's your closest person to, like, have information on you? Like, that's weird. The officers ended up gaining entry to West's house, and then another letter is found the same letterhead that was found on the door, and it's on a coffee table now, and it states that West is sleeping and to not wake him up until after one PM. So the police just leave. They're like, Okay, it's before one PM, we'll just leave. So they don't go end up going back into West's house for three weeks. So not until August fourteenth, nineteen seventy eight. This is when they found his dismembered body wrapped in sheets and garbage bags in the attic investigations they were made and unfortunately they were unable to determine what the cause of death was because he was just like so decomposed which is really sad like they should have they should have checked him before like that's absolutely ridiculous like do your job like just search the property like honestly like at the very least They ended up arresting Lewis for for this murder of his first client. The biggest piece of evidence against him at this point was that they actually saw that he took $5,000 out of West's bank account and placed it into his bank account. So they searched through Lewis's house and turned up rope, garbage bags, and also checkbooks belonging to West. (sighs) Like, could you murder any shittier Lewis was again arrested and charged with West murder. And in October, 1979 days before the trial, they actually dismissed the case as they only had circumstantial evidence. Boo. So annoying. So after this, Lewis and Leanne launched a short lived business venture where they attempted to import pill making machines from India and then later, they were suspected of credit card fraud and falsifying documents. The police ended up raiding Lewis's residence on December 4th, 1981, and wanted to arrest him for these crimes. So this is only a year before the Chicago Talon murders, okay? So the police raid him. They want to raid him for this credit card fraud, right? So this is when they ran, They didn't end up getting them. They ran away to Chicago. And this is when they went under the new assumed names, Nancy and Richard Richardson. Okay. So full circle. That's who Lewis is and his wife, Leanne. Okay. So Lewis was identified via these fingerprints on the letter. The fact that it pointed back to where his wife used to work, blah, blah, blah. So, the police were unable to link him directly to the crimes, as Lewis and his wife, Leanne, were actually in New York City at the time, and had traveled there, like, 25 days before. And as I said, like, the cyanide would, like, dissolve the pills. So, they, like, had to be there the day before. Or, like, the day before the day before that. Like, one to two days before. 25 days is two months, So, they eventually apprehended him on December 13th, and he was, ended up getting spotted at a library, of all places. So, they did think to themselves, like, you know, like, they could have gone to New York, he could have taken a plane back to Chicago, done the little pills, and then gone back to New York. Like, sure, like, it's possible. But, you know, they're not totally ruling him out. But the letterhead on the extortion letter was traced to the formal travel agency where land worked. So it was believed... That the extortion was used as a revenge attempt against Leanne's former boss over money that was owed to her after the agency went out of business, that $511. So Lewis's handwriting also matched that of a second extortion letter that was sent to President Ronald Reagan. And that one was warned uh, that the Tylenol poisonings would continue if a federal taxation overhaul wasn't conducted. And then they also threatening to crash remote control planes into the White House. Like, weird. So, anyway, Lewis ended up admitting that he was just trying to implicate Leanne's old boss, Frederick, so that he, it could be revealed that he stole this $511. Which, like, a little elaborate, would you not think? How is implicating him for these tyloan murders going to expose that he stole $511 from you? That's, like, not even what they're looking for. It makes no sense. (laughs) Like, it makes no sense. So, he was, (laughs) okay. So, Lewis ended up being convicted of extortion, and he later served 13 years out of his 20-year sentence. And he ended up being paroled in 1995, and that's when him and Leanne moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. (laughs) so court documents were released finally in 2009 that state that the department of justice investigations concluded that lewis was responsible for the poisonings despite the fact that they do not have enough evidence to charge him so in early 2009 illinois authorities actually renewed the investigation federal agents searched the home of lewis and this is now in his house in like cambridge and they see several items, including like a computer and stuff like that. And in January 2010, both Lewis and his wife Leanne submitted DNA samples and fingerprints again to the authorities. Lewis stated at this time, if the FBI plays it fair, I have nothing to worry about. Lewis continues to deny any responsibility for the poisons to this day. In 2010, so this is just a year later, Lewis ended up publishing a book that's called Poison, A Doctor's Dilemma. According to him, it had nothing to do with the Talano murders. He even stated in interviews that he regrets sending that letter at all. This, book, <laughs> this book's plot is Death by Water Poisoning by Lead in Southern Missouri. And when he went for an interview to promote his book, he ended up just doing a 48-minute interview in which many questions were directed in his role in the 1982 Tylenol murders. Because, like, what else would you honestly talk about when your book's about that? And Lewis referred everything to his lawyer and just wouldn't ask most questions, which I didn't even bother looking up the interview because having him just say, like, talk to my lawyer for 48 minutes sounded literally exhausting. That's the whole story about Lewis. So he's, yeah, there's definitely lots of information about him. I'm not entirely sold that it's Lewis. I don't know why. I just, there's a piece of me that thinks that it could just be totally someone else. Like, you know when sometimes, like, police, like, really focus on someone, and they're trying to find, like, every possible way that it connects. It's, like, they're almost, like, trying to find ways that it connects rather than, like, opening it up to see if there's any other possibilities. Like, they're just way too hyper-focused on him, in my opinion. But I don't know. I If it ends up for sure being him at some point in the entire world, which, like, what, this is 35 years ago now? I don't know if they're going to solve this. But you know what, like, if they do solve it ends up being him, I'm not going to be surprised at all. I'll be like, okay, okay, cool. Anyway, so there's two other suspects. So this next one is Roger Arnold, and he's our dock worker. And he just said, like, a few things one night about the killings in a bar. And so someone called in, you know, called the police and was like, this guy said some weird stuff. And so they did end up investigating him, and they did find a few things that connected Roger to the crime. So, the first one is he worked at a jewel warehouse and it was actually with one of the victim's fathers. And then, one of the other victims, Adam Janus, he actually purchased Tylenol from one of a jewel convenience store. And then, Mary Reiner, who's another victim, purchased her Tylenol bottle across the street from where Roger's wife worked. Weird. And then when they searched his house, they found, like, all these, like, how-to crime manuals. And then they found, like, evidence of chemistry found in the home. Like, you know, like, beakers and, like, liquids and stuff like that. And they also found some white powder. And so they ended up testing it. And it ended up being potassium carbonate. So not potassium cyanide. Uh, Unfortunately, he did refuse to take a polygraph test. And then he was just released. Like, they had nothing to really, like, link him. But later that year... Roger ended up shooting this like innocent guy and his name was John Stanisha. Roger mistook John to be like this other person, like just saw him from the side and thought that he was another friend of his. And he thought that this other friend of his was the one that ratted him out to police for saying his original comments about the Tylenol murders. And so he just like shot John Stanisha, mistaking him for this other guy And he died. He died. And so Roger was charged, obviously, and sentenced to 30 years. And he ended up getting early out on parole. And that's the story about the second suspect. So I don't know. Not a ton of evidence there. All of that kind of linkage stuff is like pretty circumstantial. Yeah, it's weird, but I wouldn't really call it the reason why by any means. And then the last suspect is kind of, in my opinion, it's a stretch. But, you know, like, you can form that opinion for yourself. So in May of 2019, the FBI requested DNA samples from, drumroll, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. So they thought that he could possibly be connected to the Tylenol murders. So for anyone who doesn't know, just super quick, uh, the Unabomber... Ted Kaczynski, a brilliant mathematician, um, but he is serving life in prison for killing three people and wounding 23 others with bombs that he actually sent through the mail. So his crimes originally happened in 1978 to 1980, but in 1982 when this happened, his parents actually lived in Chicago. So he's denied ever actually having possessed potassium cyanide, but it goes to say that his first bomb that they knew of in 1978 was actually in Chicago. And then also there is a Tylenol death. That's not like official, which is actually J. Adam Mitchell who lived in Sheridan, Wyoming. And it actually happened two months before the Chicago Tylenol murders. And this is actually really important because Sheridan is exactly on the way from Chicago to the Unibobbers cabin in Montana like, if he's traveling from one to the other. So, yeah. Take that, with you will. I don't know. I think it's a tiny bit of a stretch. There's also this, like, weird theory that the Unabomber has this really big connection with Wood and the two CEOs of Johnson & Johnson at the time, both their middle names was Wood. So, like, that's another connection. But, like, I don't know. When I was reading that, I was in, like, an eye roll state because I was like, come on. He's going to poison seven people with Tylenol bottles because these two CEOs have the middle name Wood and he doesn't like Wood or does he like Wood I don't it the whole thing was weird it was just bizarre anyway I don't think it's it's not the Unabomber in my opinion but I'm not entirely I'm not sure about Lewis I'm really not sure about Lewis it it totally could be but I think they might be a little hyper focused but let me know what you think There was a ton of copycat incidents. They actually recorded that there was about 270 in the next month alone after the murders, which is nuts. Three more deaths actually occurred in 1986 for tampered gelatin capsules. A woman ended up dying in New York after ingesting extra strength Tylenol capsules that was laced with cyanide again. And then in 1986, again, a University of Texas student whose name was Kenneth Ferries was found dead in his apartment after succumbing to cyanide poisoning. So they found out that it was tampered anacin or anakin pills. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Sorry. Uh, they were determined. That was what determined to be the source. And his death actually was ruled a homicide. But two months later, they changed it to suicide as they did finally determine that he actually obtained the poison from a lab in which he worked. And so most likely he injected it into the capsules himself. Which is just really sad. So that's really sad. So I just wanted to talk about a related case. I thought this was really interesting. It's just... It's a related case that has to do with the Chicago Tylenol murder. So just stay with me for this, okay? Just... So this is about Stella Nickel. Her maiden name was Stephenson. And she was born on August 7th, 1943. And she had two daughters actually quite young. Her oldest being Cynthia, who she had when she was 15. And Stella ended up meeting Bruce Nickel in 1974, and they got married shortly after. And he was a heavy equipment operator with a, a quite a severe drinking problem, but S- Stella loved it. Like, she also was a little bit of a drinker, and it totally just suited her lifestyle, so she was fine with it. But unfortunately, or, well, I don't want to say unfortunately, but unfortunately for Stella, I guess, is over the course of their 10-year marriage... Bruce actually went to rehab and gave up drinking and was trying to like live a healthier lifestyle like go Bruce and Stella just totally resented it like she hated it so she ended up just you know starting to work more evenings at the airport and ended up cultivating a new home aquarium as her new hobby and like that's where she just spent most of her time is just like working and dealing with this aquarium she just had kind of checked out of the marriage a little bit I guess. So on June 5th, 1986, the couple was now living in Auburn, Washington, and Bruce was 52, and he came home with, like, a pretty bad headache, and according to Stella, Bruce took four extra strength Ascetrin capsules from a bottle in their home, and then he collapsed moments later. So he died shortly after at the hospital, unfortunately they were unable to revive him, and his death was ruled natural causes, citing emphysema. So then... A second death occurs less than a week later, which forced police to reconsider Bruce's cause of death. So on June 11th, this lady's now name is Sue Snow. I love her name. Is that not so cute? Sue Snow. Anyway, (laughs) she's a 40 year old bank manager in Auburn. And she took two Excedrin capsules as well, also for a headache. And then Sue's husband, Paul, took two capsules from the same bottle for his arthritis and left the house for work. And then at 6.30 in the morning, their 15-year-old daughter, Haley, found Sue collapsed on the floor of her bathroom, unresponsive, and a faint pulse. And unfortunately, she died later, and they could not revive her, and her husband was fine. They completed an autopsy on Sue, and the medical examiner immediately detected the scent of bitter almonds, which, again, is the odor distinctive of cyanide. So test results indicated that Sue died of acute cyanide poisoning. After searching the house, they found the source to be the Excedrin capsules that both Sue and Paul used that morning. Three capsules out of those that remained in the 60 capsule bottle were found to be poison. So Paul's like super lucky and Sue's very unlucky. So another tainted bottle from the same lot was found in a grocery store in nearby Kent, Washington. And so the manufacturers of Ascension, which is Bristol Myers, they responded to the discovery with a recall of all Ascension pod- products in the Seattle area. A group of drug companies came together and offered a 300000 reward for any information on the personal responsible, which is like, whoa! what a reward, right? Three hundred grand. I didn't hear anyone ever getting it. So what a shame. In response to all the publicity, Stella came forward on June 19th and she told police that her husband had recently died after taking pills from a 40 capsule bottle of Excedrin with the same lot number as the one that had killed Sue Snow. So they completed tests and Bruce did have cyanide in his system and they found poison pills in both bottles that she handed over to the police. Obviously the initial suspicions were directed towards Bristol Myers, just like, you know, it was with Johnson Johnson. And both Paul and Stella filed wrongful death lawsuits against the company immediately. On June 18th, Bristol-Myers recalled all Accenture in the U.S. And then two days later, the company announced a recall of all their non-prescription capsule products. So that's like pfft, a lot, a lot. So on June 24th, a cyanide-contaminated bottle of Anakin-3 was found. I don't know if I'm saying that right again, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Anakin or Anacin? I don't know. Oh, my God. They were actually found at the same store where Sue Snow had bought her bottle. And then on June 7th, Washington State ended up putting an effect on a 90-day ban on the sale of non-prescription medication and capsules. So when they tested the tainted capsules, they also found flecks of this like weird green substance that ended up being algaecide used in, algaecide, algae, algaecide, home aquariums. Oh yeah. And it was under the brand Algae Destroyer. Well, who has a home aquarium, you may ask? Hmm. Okay. So they go to Paul and Stella and they're like, hmm, okay, what's going on here? And they're asked to take a polygraph. So Paul agrees, but Stella, good old Stella over here, didn't. She stated that the reason she didn't want to is because she'd been drinking a lot recently, like, with her husband's death. She's very depressed, and she thinks that she, like, wouldn't pass no matter what. Kind of understandable, but, like, mm. So they did start to suspect that she was involved, as they had only found... Five contaminated bottles in the whole country. And, like, what are the odds that Stella acquired two of them? Like, that's so weird. So, they then discovered that Stella had actually taken out a total of $76,000 in life insurance coverage on her husband, with an additional $100,000 if his death was ruled accidental. And then, also, the signatures and the two insurance policies in his name were totally forged. And then, they went ahead and verified that Stella had purchased Algae Destroyer from a local fish store. So it's not looking too good for Stella. So Stella finally consented to a polygraph exam in November of 1986, and she failed. Shocking! Unfortunately, they could never verify that she ever purchased cyanide, but they were certain it was Stella who was responsible. So in January of 1987, you know, it's a few months later, Cynthia Hamilton comes forward. This is Stella's oldest daughter. And she approached police stating that Stella had actually spoken to her recently about wanting Bruce dead, having grown bored of him now that he's quit drinking. So in January of 1987, Cynthia, who is Stella's oldest daughter, she approached police stating that Stella had spoken to her repeatedly about wanting Bruce dead because she grew bored of him when he quit drinking. Like what? Stella even told Cynthia that she had tried to poison Bruce with foxglove, which is, I had to look it up, it's this plant that's apparently toxic, and she had actually hid that in capsules as well, but it failed. So she began to search in the library for other options, and happened upon cyanide. Stella also talked to Cynthia about the life insurance money, and, like, what they would spend it on when they would get it. So, like, ooh, suspicious, ah. So they verified that Stella had actually taken out numerous books about poisons, one of them being, uh, which is like pretty incriminating, human poisons from native and cultivated plants and deadly harvest. Like, that's not looking good. Not at all. So finally, on December 9th, 1987, Stella was indicted by a federal grand jury on five counts of product tampering, including two which resulted in the deaths of Bruce and Sue. So she went on trial in April of 1988 and was found guilty in May. Stella was sentenced to two terms of 90 years in prison for the deaths and three 10-year terms for the other product tampering. So the reason why I wanted to bring this case up is actually after the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders, the FDA came up with new regulations that went into effect, which made it a federal crime rather than just a state or local crime to tamper with consumer products. So I found that really interesting because local and state authorities are not however prevented from filing charges as well. So specifically in Stella's case, she was only prosecuted as a like at a federal level for product tampering and not as a murder. So she could actually continue to be charged by the state for the murders of Bruce and Sue as well. I assume they didn't do that because she got like an insane sentence. Like she's obviously going to die in prison. But I thought that was really interesting that like that, that happened because of Chicago Tylenol murders. So like this one case changed like an insane amount of things about products, how other companies think of products, laws. It's just, I don't know. It's interesting that that's all, that all that happened. I have a little bit of additional notes some of the families did sue Johnson & Johnson. So all seven victims did settle for an undisclosed sum of money uh, in 1991. And one of the stipulations was that annuities actually be created to pay for the college costs of the victims' uh, eight children. So so I, I think that actually did go through. I found an interesting fact as well. Is actually the day before the murder, around 2.30 in the morning, so this is September 28th, 1982. Uh, Two Kane County Sheriff deputies stopped at a Howard Johnson hotel diner to grab some food. And on a grassy strip near the parking lot, like they parked and they see this grassy strip over here. And they notice that there's these two boxes that say extra strength Tylenol capsules on the side. And hundreds of Tylenols were just scattered on the ground in this like giant pile of white powder so they rubbed the powder between their fingers and just figured that, like, drug deals had, like, dropped this off. And they were just, like, doing it part of, like, cutting it for their drugs or something. So anyway, they, like, leave it. They go into the diner. They eat their meals. And they both get, like, super sick. Like, writhing in pain. Like, arm pain. They're, like, so ill. They end up, like, leaving. They can't go back to work. They end up being in... A, like hospitalized and then once they're released from the hospital they like totally realize like oh my god that like, this is related to like what's going on and so they run back to the parking lot and the items are gone what was that so i thought that, that was so interesting so like i really 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 like this case i ended up finding this case because i really like the youtube channel like buzzfeed unsolved And they do, like, unsolved cases, obviously, true crime, like, some supernatural ones. And I really like it. It's been on, for I think, for, like, five or six years. And they did this case. And I thought it was so interesting because I had no idea why we had those seals on those bottles and, like, why that happened or anything of it. It was, you know, it was just like that in my whole life. So I found that kind of stuff interesting. I was a little nervous today because the podcast is by myself, but... Yeah, I've been talking. This Some of it will get edited out. But I've been talking for an hour. So obviously I don't have a problem talking. So I know it probably was a little boring. I don't know if I made good enough jokes. I was a little nervous. So it's definitely different doing it by yourself. I definitely don't hate it. I don't know if I like it. But you know what? It's a thing that has to happen once in a while when... You don't have a co-host. Do you want to try something new? So let me know what you thought about the Chicago Tylenol murders and about Stella. You know, do you think she was sloppy? Do you think she did it? You know, let me know. Do you think that Lewis is the guy involved with Chicago Tylenol murders? Do you think they're hyper-focused? You know, what's your opinion? Let me know. But thanks for tuning in. Again, thank you everyone for listening. Let me know if you have any other cases that I should talk about or look into. Like I said in the beginning, I will not be returning until August 24th for my next episode. So please enjoy the summer, everyone, until then. And if you want to add the podcast on Instagram, I will definitely try to be making more content on there. Yeah, I will definitely try. So if you want to, you know, tune into that, it's Murder Sandwich Podcast. And until next month, bye.